Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. So, you might be aware that Jesus was raised in a tiny little town up in the hills or mountains in the northern Galilee region. Does anybody know what the town he was raised in is? And by the way, it's not Bethlehem. Nazareth, right? It's Nazareth. And, and, and it's a small little village, and, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it or what it might be like or look like, but Jesus had a spectacular view growing up. I want to show you some of these pictures of Jesus, uh, or not Jesus, of where Jesus was in Nazareth. If he was looking down, and this was his view that he had as a little kid, and the view, what was he looking at? He was looking down upon the Jezreel Valley what you and I might also refer to as Megiddo or the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Armageddon. It's a 375 square mile valley that stretched out from the bottom of Nazareth. And I don't know about you, but I wonder, did Jesus ever think about that valley as a kid? Did he ever think about the fact that one day, that that valley that Jesus looked upon would one day host the battle, really, of all battles, the final battle, the battle of Armageddon that would only be stopped when Jesus himself would return to earth the second time. I wonder if he thought about that and pondered that. Now, God gives the Apostle John a front row seat into, really, the greatest event of all time, and that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And upon Jesus' arrival, he is not only going to stop the the battle that's in that valley, but he's also going to start or set up his kingdom, which will eventually ultimately be his eternal kingdom. As we've discovered in this series, if you've been with us, the final seven-year period of time before the return of Jesus, uh, called the tribulation period, will be a time when God uh, pours out his wrath, if you will, upon humanity for us choosing to reject him. And he will do that through a series of judgments that we've been talking about. If you haven't been with us through the whole series, really encourage you to go back and listen or watch to some of the different messages. But as bad as it's been through the seven-year period, really starting in chapter 19 and taking us through the end of Revelation, we finally see that things are going to turn for the better as Jesus will take over the earth that he himself created. Now, what is it that you, what do you and I know about this greatest event the world will ever see, the second coming of Jesus? What do we know? Well, first we know that the second coming of Jesus has been anticipated by the prophets really since the beginning. I want you to turn your Bible to Revelation chapter 19 if you haven't already done so. You can go in a physical Bible. You can also go onto the YouVersion Bible app on your phones. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, it tells us this. It is the spirit of prophecy. Everybody say prophecy. It's the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. The New Living Translation, I love how it says it. It says, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. In other words, prophecy is, is critical some, uh, for us to know and understand because Jesus is the star on center stage in the theater of biblical prophecy. 
He's the one that the prophets focused on most and focused on more than anything else in Scripture, focusing on both his redemption as well as his rule. Now, scarlets, scarlets, I did it first service. Scholars will oftentimes talk about the scarlet thread of redemption. Scholars will talk about the scarlet thread of redemption that is weaving throughout, woven throughout Scripture. And, at, and they say that on every page of the Bible, no matter where you turn, you see hints of the coming sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Hence, you have the term, the scarlet, you know, his blood shed, the scarlet thread of redemption. But also woven throughout Scripture is the golden thread of his coming rule and his reign over the earth. And that is woven throughout the Scripture. In fact, Jesus' second coming is dealt with over 1,800 times in the Bible. I want you to think about that. One out of every 30 verses either speaks of or alludes to the second coming of Christ and the, the end of days. It's the most prominent subject for every one time. We read about the first coming of Jesus. We read about the second coming eight times. Jesus personally referred to his return 21 times. And over 50 times, we are told to be ready. To be ready, to pay attention, be ready for his return. Revelation chapter 19 is that glorious return. It's the time when the serpent's head will finally be crushed that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. This is the time in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God promised to King David that somebody from his family line would come one day and rule and reign and his kingdom would never end. This is the time that Isaiah the prophet spoke about in Isaiah chapter 9 when it said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and you might know the passage, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This is the time that Dan when Daniel interpreted the dream or vision of King Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel said of that dream and, and, and gave the interpretation in Daniel chapter 2 where it said, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure. You see, all of the prophets saw the one who would come from heaven to earth who would eliminate or destroy or dethrone, if you will, the Antichrist, and who would set up his own kingdom. All the prophets knew that human history would reach this culmination. Jesus himself talked about this, and Jesus often used the term son of man to refer to himself. And in talking about this, this return, and, and as you reread this verse, if you've been with us these last few weeks, some of the language here, you're like, oh yeah, we just read about that. We just talked about that in a previous week. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. We've read about that. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And by the way, some of the great songs that have been sung throughout human history 
have been about the return or the second coming of Jesus. Charles Wesley was a famous preacher, but he was also a a writer of hymns. He wrote over 7,000 hymns, of which 5,000 of them deal with or talk about the second coming of Jesus. Also kind of interesting, Isaac Watts wrote the song that we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. I hate to break the news to you, but when he wrote that, it was about the second coming of Jesus and not his first coming. Uh, and doesn't mean we don't still sing about it at Christmas. I hope I didn't ruin your Christmas. I thought about not even sharing that and just disregarding, but that's the reality. It was about his second coming. So when we sing at Christmas time uh, and we're praising God for his first coming, we're actually also anticipating his second coming when we sing that song. During the American Civil War, Julia Ward Howe looked past uh, all the heartache and the death that she saw during that civil war and she looked to the second coming of Christ as she wrote the battle hymn of the republic. If you were to take uh, and Google it sometime this week, don't do it now, but Google the words, put it right next to uh, Revelation 19 and you'd think, okay, she was literally writing about Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus. Just reading the opening lines, you even see that where she says, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. So many great songs, both uh, in our nation and with our faith throughout the 2,000 years that deal with the second coming of Christ. Why? Because God told us it was going to happen. And God told us through the prophets, the prophets anticipated the second coming of of Christ. They told us about that. But also, the second coming of Jesus, it, when he returns, it will be seen by everyone. Revelation chapter 1 says, look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. So everybody is going to see the return of Jesus. And what are they going to see? Revelation 19 gives us a very specific description of the Savior who is returning. And it's very different than the description or picture we get of Jesus at his first coming. For example, in the Gospels, we read that Jesus looked upon people with eyes of compassion. But look here in Revelation chapter 19. Let's pick it up in verse 12. It says this. It says, his eyes are like blazing fire. So at his second coming, rather than coming with eyes of compassion... He, fire which symbolizes judgment. Jesus will return and his penetrating gaze will judge every action, every behavior, every motivation. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus uh, wearing a crown of what? Crown of what? Crown of thorns that was mockingly put on Jesus by the Roman soldiers. But here in verse 12, Revelation chapter 19, we read that on his head were many crowns. So rather than these, this mocking crown, now Jesus has many crowns. What does that mean? Crowns refers to rulership, to ownership, to sovereignty, to authority. Jesus is returning, and he is now in charge. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus stands before uh, Pontius Pilate. And Jesus says this. He says my, in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over. Nobody fought with or for Jesus at his first coming. 
There was a weak little attempt by, by Peter trying to chop off Malchus's ear, but other than that, no one fought for him. But everything changes at the second coming when his kingdom would finally be established and would come to this world. And notice in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges. And what does he do? He wages war. Jump to verse 14. It says, the armies of heaven were following him. So this time, Jesus will come and his followers, they are ready for battle. At Jesus' first coming, his robe was drenched in his own blood by the scourging he took from the Roman soldiers. But here in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, it tells us that this time he is dressed in a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies, which fulfills uh, Isaiah chapter 63, which talks about the blood being the blood of his enemies. So we have a very different version of Jesus the second time he returns, the time he comes back. This is not the humble, gentle Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as he humbly comes and sacrifices himself. Not the second time. The second time he doesn't come as a humble lamb. The second time he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes as the warrior king. In fact, this is how Paul the apostle described it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He said, Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So, let's step into the scene. As the hostilities towards Israel are reaching a fever pitch, at the peak and height of all of that, Armies will have been gathered around the world because the Antichrist will deceive them to gathering to go and attack Israel. They will gather together in that Jezreel Valley that Jesus as a child looked upon up from Nazareth. And they will begin to march towards Jerusalem. And in that moment, Jesus will return and all will see his return. And then Revelation goes on to tell us, chapter 19, that the second coming of Jesus will then end that battle. So, again, picture the scene. Jesus arrives on the scene. The armies have gathered in the Jezreel Valley called the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Armageddon. And they've come to destroy Israel, to destroy God. And we've been talking about that these last few weeks. In fact, Zechariah chapter 14, God said, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. God prophesied that this would happen. Now, how is Jesus going to defeat those who have gathered? I mean, he's coming down on this white horse. He's got the armies of heaven with him. I can only imagine the bloodbath that's going to ensue here. I can only imagine all of us fighting with our swords, fighting for Jesus. I can imagine the angels gathering and fighting, and there's going to be this massive war. Is that what happens? Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 tells us what happens. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Verse 21 says, the sword coming, there's a sword that comes out of his mouth. We know the sword is, if you've studied scripture, what's the sword? The word of God, right? Jesus is just going to speak the word of God and the battle ends. In other words, there is no battle to speak of. 
Jesus just speaks. Jesus just simply wins. Total victory. Paul said it this way, and even talking about the Antichrist and all of this that will happen, uh, verse, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. In speaking about this battle, I want to draw a contrast to two suppers that we see in Revelation chapter 19 that gives us some imagery of what this is, looks like as this, as this time comes about. The first supper that will take place before Jesus returns takes place in heaven. Verse 7 says it's called the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what the first 10 verses of chapter 19 are all about. The wedding supper of the Lamb is where, where those in heaven celebrate and praise and worship Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling God's redemptive plan. We're anticipating it is coming shortly. God is fulfilling the prophetic plan that he laid out for the, all of the, the prophets. He told us in advance what he would do. And so all those in, in heaven celebrate at this wedding supper of the Lamb. But in verse 17, it talks about the great supper of God. You have the wedding of the Lamb, wedding supper of the Lamb, and you have the great supper of God. The great supper of God is what happens here at Armageddon in the Jezreel Valley, that Jesus will slay people with God's word. But then what happens at that battle? That's where you get this description, description of the great supper of God. And notice what it says, Revelation chapter 19, verse 18. It says, uh, of this battle where Jesus slays people with the, with, the, with the word of God, it says, the birds of the air will then eat the flesh of kings and generals and the mighty of horses and the riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And so we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, but here we have the great supper of God where judgment is carried out by Jesus so I just ask the question, what supper do you want to be a part of? Which one do you want to be a part of? Either you come to the supper of the lamb or you be supper for the birds, right? I mean, those are our options here. Either you accept the invitation of Jesus and so that you can join with other believers to be at the marriage supper of the lamb or we be the main course at the great supper of God. It's such a dramatic contrast that you and I see in these verses. By the way, it's very interesting the picture we get of Jesus' return and where he turns. Let's picture this, Jesus descending from heaven. How do we, we read about it here? We read about it in Acts chapter 1. And the disciples are all gathered, and Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been with them for a handful of days, and now Jesus is going to go up to heaven. And, and he's with them there, and, and Jesus is literally rising up, ascending to heaven, and ascending into the clouds. And the angel says, this one you're looking at and paying attention to, this is how he will come back and how he will return, just like he went up. And so you can picture, you can imagine, Jesus begins to descend from heaven. And all eyes will see him. He looks over the Jezreel Valley, this so-called battle of Armageddon. And he just speaks victory. And it's accomplished. As he continues his descent, Zechariah chapter 14 says, On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. That's Jesus' return. 
That's his touchdown. That's his landing point. The same place he went up to heaven will be the same place, he's, place he returns, and the Mount of Olives were literally split in two. So Jesus' second coming, it was foretold by the prophets and anticipated by the prophets. And when he returns, everybody will see him. He'll put an end to this so-called battle, this war of Armageddon. But then next, the second coming of Jesus will not only end this war, but it's going to result in something special. It's going to result in a conversion. Now let me explain. In this passage, Revelation chapter 19, John records four names or titles that are given to Jesus. Let's check these out. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says this. There before me was a white horn, a horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, if you think about what we've been reading about in the previous uh, chapters, we've been reading about one that we refer to, the Bible refers to as the beast or the Antichrist. The one who is anything but faithful and true. The one who is unfaithful. The one who is false. But here, John says, now, the one who is unfaithful, who is false, who has been deceiving the nations to worshiping him rather than worshiping God, now, John says, the true Christ, not the Antichrist, but the true Christ will step down into our lives. The one who will keep his promise why? Because he's faithful, because he's true. He's true to his word. What God said he would accomplish, he would accomplish. Second, Revelation chapter 19, verse 13 says, his name is the word of God. Some of you who've read through the book of John might be familiar with John chapter 1. His name is the word of God. John chapter 1, what did John say? He said, in the, some of you might know this, repeat it for me. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and was with God. You get that Trinity image there. You jump down a few verses later in John chapter 1, and what does it say? And the Word that was God and was with God, it became he became flesh and dwelt among us. He, that word dwelt, he, he came and tabernacled, or, or, or tent, it's the word tent. He came and lived among us. The imagery of the tent of God, the tabernacle of God in the Old Testament. And so you get this amazing picture. The word of God literally came and became one of us and lived among us. Then in verse 12, we see something else that's odd about Jesus and his name. It says in verse 12, he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He had, a, he had a name that no one knew but he himself. I read that and go, what does that mean? I mean, seriously, why don't we or can't we know? And if we can't know what the name is, what's the point of it? Why is it even mentioned? See, that's kind of how I think. You might think similarly. But if you lived back then in the first century, you would have known exactly what was meant by that. Because in those ancient times... To name somebody, that meant you had authority over them. We don't think in those terms today, but back then, it meant you had authority over someone. So for Jesus to have a name that no one knew except he himself meant nobody has the right to name Jesus. That nobody has the right to usurp his authority. In other words, he's the sovereign one. He's the one who will ultimately rule and reign there's nobody above him. 
And then in chapter six, or verse 16, we get the banner headline. The name that you and I have said so many times. We've sung it. We've prayed it. We've praised it. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. And let's say it together. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. And what is it? It is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus' victorious name. What people have longed for since the beginning. The Messiah returning to rule and reign. He has the many crowns that we just read about. This King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's why people will bow. That's why the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's coming and he's going to usher in his everlasting kingdom. And so as I mentioned, Jesus' second coming is going to result in a conversion of a specific group of people. There's going to be a remnant of the Jewish people who are still alive when Jesus returns. And they will see this event, and they will realize in that moment they've misread Jesus. They've misread him. The one they rejected as their Messiah the first time, they will see, oh, he is the one who is faithful and true. Oh, he is the one who has a name that nobody knows but he, he himself. Oh, he is the one who rules and reigns. Oh, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Jewish people collectively as a nation have rejected Jesus, but collectively as a nation they will now in fact turn to their Messiah and realize he is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is our Messiah. Zechariah chapter 12 tells us what will happen in that moment is that they will look upon me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will mourn humbly, realizing they missed it, but now they have an opportunity to receive Jesus. That's what Paul meant in Romans chapter 11 when he said, and so all Israel will be saved. At that moment, the remnant will turn to Jesus. We haven't had a lot of time to discuss this topic. In fact, we haven't really talked about it much at all, if at all, because there's just been so much to talk about. But the reality is, one of the big reasons, we've talked about, about the whole idea of the tribulation period being a time when God would pour out his wrath and his judgment upon earth for rejecting God, for rejecting Jesus, his Messiah. But another big part, co- uh, concurrently with that, The reason for the tribulation period, one of the main reasons, is to prepare Israel to receive Jesus as their Messiah. It's why the tribulation period is called the 70th week in the book of Daniel. It's why the tribulation period is called the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble. Why? Because it's all about Israel and what God's doing with Israel. And he wasn't finished with Israel. He had a covenant with his people. And God will use this to draw people to his son, their Messiah, Jesus. And finally, Jesus' return will not only result in a conversion, but it's going to usher in a new kingdom. We're going to finish our series next week looking at this new kingdom. The kingdom of God in which Jesus rules and reigns. But I want you to notice how that comes about, what sets the stage for it. Final part, Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. 
And as we read this, if you've been with us, some of this language just starts to make more and more sense. Then I saw the beast. A lot of us know by now the beast, the Antichrist. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to rage war against the rider on the horse and his army. We talked all about that last week. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet, we've read about him. What did he do? He performed the signs on behalf of the beast. With these signs, he had deluded, better, many translations say he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. You see, at Jesus' second coming, he doesn't come in humility riding a donkey into Jerusalem like he did the first time. And they welcomed him and they put palm branches down and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which is a messianic uh, um, prophecy. A handful of people were thinking and recognizing, hey, he might be the one. No, no. He doesn't come humbly on a donkey like he did the first time to be a suffering servant. This time he comes riding in on a white horse. A white horse representing in that time, it represents a king or a general coming and going out to battle. And verse 20, look at it again. It tells us something very interesting. It tells us about the first occupiers of hell. The devil isn't, Satan isn't in hell at this point. The first occupiers of hell will be the Antichrist and the false prophet, thrown alive in what this describes as the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Next week, we're going to see what happens to Satan, and we'll see his demise. But these verses let us know at this point, the rule and reign of mankind and man as we know it ends. The rule and reign of Satan and all that he's done to deceive the world, it ends. It's done. And we will then step into the millennial reign and rule of Jesus, which we're going to talk about next week. Where Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 says that Jesus is going to rule them with an iron scepter. God's justice will be immediate. It will be absolute. And this is what's coming. This is what's coming. Jesus is going to put an end to all the systems of man, put an end to all false religion, to all those who have rejected him. He's going to fulfill what the prophets have been talking about since the beginning, what God talked about since the beginning that God said would happen. His return is the greatest event in history. And my hope and my prayer for you is that the mess, this message, the story, the study of Revelation, which has been focused on and pointing to Jesus, my hope and prayer is that it inspires you in faith. That's the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy doesn't come about so that it would cause fear in us. Prophecy is meant to create faith, to grow faith, to increase faith. And at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he was in prison. He knew he would die shortly. And he wrote these final words to one he called this a son in, his face, in the face, somebody he discipled and mentored and shared ministry with. He wrote to Timothy, and he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me. What is it? It's the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, 
but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Interesting that some of Paul's very last words talked about a prize that awaited him because he was longing and looking for and looking forward to Jesus' return. Is that you? Do you long for the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus? Do you look forward to his appearing, those who do receive the prize, the crown of righteousness? So I ask you the question, is he, as, as it says on Jesus' robe, King of kings, Lord of lords, is he your King of kings? Is he your Lord of lords? The reality is, we know it, but the scriptures are clear, Jesus is coming back. Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Would you like to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb or beast supper at the great supper of God? You get to choose. God gives you the choice. What do you choose? Let's pray about that now. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.